What do Roseanne Barr, Killer Mike, and the late Moish Postone have in common? They'll all three be discussed on this, the sixth episode of Shit Platypuses. Stay tuned. We are going to do a special segment from the archive. An influential figure for Parapas recently passed away. His name is Moshe Bastone. And we want to pull an interview from a very early PR issue. In fact, the first interview in the Parapas Review, uh, number three, from 10 years ago, March 2008, it was an interview conducted with Moish, where Pam Nogales and Ben Blomberg did the interview with him. And I thought since Moish Poston recently passed away and we've been thinking a lot about his legacy, his legacy as a figure of the new left, his legacy uh, as a representative of this return to Marx moment uh, in the new left in the midst sort of the political crisis of the 1960s. Uh, we thought it would be a good chance to take a look to revisit this interview uh, and his sort of uh, influence and in thinking uh, for us today. So how does he resonate still for us in the present? Um, I thought it would be, yeah, important to discuss in sort of in memoriam kind of way. Um, welcome, Pam. Welcome, Audrey. Good to have hey, you. Hey. So, um, yeah, Pam, you had a key role in this. And I just, my first question for you really was, you were also editor-in-chief at this moment. Sort of what motivated you to take the interview approach and particularly what motivated you to interview Moish Bastone? I have to admit that probably the details escaped me, but we were we were already in the midst of the reading group in Platypus. We were already uh, were dealing with the legacy of the new left. And the question was also in what way was Moish part of this new left turn, this this moment that for many appeared to be an opportunity. And how did he make sense of his own politicization or his own approach to Marx? So there was that. I think there was also, because several of us um, were taking his class on Capitol, there was just a, a curiosity about, you know, what what he was teaching us, what we were inheriting uh, of Marx through Moish Pistone. And so it was a way of making our questions much more explicit than they could have been in the classroom. And it was also a way of taking a lot more liberty and asking about his personal trajectory as someone that arrived to Marxism in the 60s. Yeah, and this is one of the first questions in the interview, sort of how did he come upon Marx? And he says, that, like many people, it was through the Communist Manifesto. Um, he didn't like it really, that much. And he didn't like it that much. Then he said that he discovered the 1844 manuscripts, which also was kind of like a moment of the 60s when they were translated to English and people looking at Marx through the 1844 manuscripts, uh, that that was kind of, and a particular turning point, he said, was reading the article by Martin Nicolaus, which we also discussed in the reading group, The Unknown Marx, um, that he wrote while he was translating the Grundrisse in 1967, uh, which also kind of, it's, that translation is often 
still use Martin Nichols's translation of the Grandisa are still often used and were and we very should, important during. We should say for the for people left. who are not familiar with that that these are just the the notebooks, the early notebooks of Marx, a kind of uh, notes to himself, his own research as to what's going to become later the project of capital. Paston said that he um, sort of bought into the young Marx, late Marx distinction of like the young Marx was truly revolutionary and then late Marx was, you know, Victorian and, and reformist or something. That's right. Yes, that, that's, the, that's the mythos that Nicholas is trying to dispel in that essay, The Unknown Marx, that, you know, first he, uh, he was a, uh, an open humanist uh, young man and then he became a Victorian and his thought became petrified and then some some even say that like he, he was too influenced by Hegel and this shows in the later Marx. There are all these ways in which people talk about the young and the old Marx and and Postone thinks that that's wrong mm-hmm. and also wants to say that Nicolaus does a good job at dispelling that. And it is a really good essay in that regard. Um, yeah. Yeah, and this the the important thing again is we have to think about I think it's important to understand Moise Postone as sort of a very important interpreter of Marx that comes out from the 60s generation moment um but sort of what's motivating that and one of the things that he says in the interview uh that is kind of rare to hear about in the 60s was that uh he started a reading group at University of Chicago in the 60s and that um there was that his reading group was on Marx and Hegel uh, which was right, kind of a rare thing. If one thinks about a moment, which was a lot of the 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 new left was making arguments like now is the time to act, not the time to think, mm-hmm. right? And so to take a step in in that moment, uh, he he was actually Paston says that he responds to a a study group that was called Youth as Class, which is sort of the new subject of the sixties, being the young youth that has entered university and so the new students being kind of like the center of attention of the 60s but in response then uh he ran a reading group on hegel and marx and he thought that that was like essential to understanding um the historical moment that they were in yeah it's it's curious i mean we talk about the new left sometimes in the united states especially it's seen as the students uh you know setting up the barricades like occupying the university uh, forcing questions of gender and race. And here's Morse Stone saying, actually, now is the time to go back to Hegel. Now it's the time to think about what Marx was. And and in many ways, maybe that was also like a missed opportunity that, you know, what, what, what legacy is left of that part of the new left is unclear today. Most people have this idea of the revolutionary students. Um, that's what they think of the new left. But well, didn't a group of them from the revolutionary youth movement split off and formed the Weathermen. Yeah, too? that's right. So it's like ultra actionism, and then yeah. like the best of I guess theoreticians, like those two. Yeah, tendencies. yeah, yeah. And the idea that you know they have a very funny way. The the, the Weathermen had a really funny way of um, thinking about consciousness. That like consciousness was going to be awakened by like witnessing the violence right of how the state imperialist act in vietnam or wherever 
by blowing up like certain buildings or you know eventually some of them ended up blowing themselves accidentally mm-hmm. um but this confrontation that consciousness was going to be awakened and become revolutionary by this force of the act of the terrorist act um and that's definitely a, a fundamental departure from anything that Moish thought was necessary in my in, in in some ways he thought that a deeper kind of introspection into the very nature of the questions that Marx uh, raised it was necessary that the theory wasn't done it wasn't that we were just going to get our theory and go to the streets and act or you know support the colonial revolutionary subject or something but that that we needed to ask deeper questions more meaningful questions about what the legacy of Marx was about and in that sense I think that's why he's also very important for Platypus yeah definitely so Pastone's considered a neo-Marxist what does that what does that really mean how is it I guess, distinct from Marxists in the traditional sense. I mean, in some ways, it's this question that the title, you know, tries to capture, like, Marx after Marxism, um, meaning, like, not the old school, you know, the old left, the hard-boiled communists that defended the USSR, not the Trotskyists that ended up being the historians of a certain oppositional tendency, uh, not the Maoists that turn Marx into the plan for action of the colonial subject, but what was Marx's thought after the disaster of the 20th century? How can we think about it? I, I don't know if that captures entirely what it means to be a neo-Marxist, but I think that the neo is maybe deceive, deceiving um, because, right, it's like a, a new form, unlike, you know, we've ever seen before. And yet, like, Moish in some regards is kind of a throwback you know, he's going to the 19th and the 18th century to make points that he thinks have been lost. Perhaps he doesn't say those so explicitly. Well, sometimes he does. Because of some of the vulgar thought of the left in the 20th century. I mean, if if Moorish had one kind of hobby horse uh, concept was the, the vulgar, the Marx. vulgar left, the oh, vulgar the... Marxism of the old... <clears throat> of the old left of the early 20th century. And this Which, is actually kind of a difficult point for for us to deal with, how we think about this early 20th century um, revolutionaries. And it's something that we get into the interview somewhat, um, but it, it becomes a question that Platypus takes up beyond Moish about how to think about the ways that the early 20th century revolutionaries, um, the second international dissidents like Lenin and Luxembourg, understood Marx and whether or not they were just vulgar um, and that was the problem or if it was a problem of politics and the question of how Moish thinks about the political legacy of Marxism is a difficult one. Yeah, I think the two important issues with vulgar Marxism is that on one hand, sometimes vulgar vulgar Marxism is meant to point to the economic deterministic readings of Marx Right, that's sticking to so to the economy as a source, and the other is particularly. I think the other term that Moish would bring up was not only vulgar Marxism, but sort of the orthodox or traditional Marxism, um, and and that seems to be what I think he's usually talking about. There is certain kinds of Trotskyism, which would have also stressed the centrality of the working class. Uh, who become sort of workerist in a sense. Um, but by the mid-20th century, that question begins to be not look so certain. 
uh, sort of the role of the working class in the revolution, how central the working class is to pointing the possibility of, of pointing beyond capitalism, of actually getting us beyond capitalism towards socialism. Um, and these are issues that are really um, sort of in the air problems of the 60s. Marx was more than a spokesperson for the oppressed. I think Marx is the most significant social theorist of modernity. And the way he tried to understand modernity was as capital. And in a sense, when I, picking up on, on Marx, argued that the subject, now subject in Hegel's sense of the driver of history that unfolds, he uses that language in speaking of the category of capital. And so the question is, what does he mean by that? And I think that one of the many things he's trying to elaborate is the question of why does the modern period, modern history, modernity, capitalism, have a sort of a dynamism that no other form of human social life has had. To say that it has dynamism does not necessarily mean that that is a good thing. It's descriptive. And the category of capital with Marx's emphasis on time is, among many other things, an attempt to explain why capitalist modernity it not only has a dynamic, but is accelerating. And I think that a focus only on issues of exploitation, which of course is also central to Marx, but an exclusive focus on questions of exploitation and property doesn't get you at this fundamental feature of modern social life. One of the things that I thought was especially helpful in thinking about Marx was this notion of the revolutionary potential of the proletariat and how to think about it in a way that doesn't um, turn the category of the proletariat into some kind of fetishized source of emancipation as a sociological subject. In other words, and we can just you know pull it right from the interview, I asked him, how can we account for Marx's statement that the proletariat is a revolutionary force without falling into a vulgar apprehension of its revolutionary character? Right. And he essentially sort of breaks down the ways in which Marx thought that the revolution, or rather Marx thought that the proletariat was a revolutionary uh, subject. And it's primarily because of his standpoint within the system of capitalism so that you have uh, a subject who is essentially who is essential for the dynamic of the system. The interaction between capital and labor is essential for the dynamic of the system. And in that regard, therefore, the proletariat is not outside the system. It's, his revolutionary potential is there because he's integral to the system. Um, and laborers are not by themselves emancipatory. Working, the working people are not in and of themselves seeking to realize socialism. The worker is potentially revolutionary because of his position within the reconstitution of capitalism, because it's central to the dynamism of capitalism. 
And that's what concerned Marx. So it's always potential, potentially revolutionary. Um, and the way that Marx talks about it was, you know, first you become a class in itself. There's the historical apparition of the proletariat as such, as that of working people divorced from the land that need to take their labor force to the market. There's that emergence. And then there's the for itself. And the question of how the proletariat sees itself as a revolutionary force, uh, which brings up the issue of politics, right? Which brings up like the ways in which the laborer sees himself as part of a revolutionary force and how that's mediated through the left is left kind of open for Pastone. Uh, Pastone has a negative critique. He thinks that the left shouldn't uh, speak to people in certain ways, that they shouldn't fetishize uh, social relations. And he leaves open, I think, the question of what politics to embrace. Uh, he does say the one very important thing, thing, he says a very important thing about the new left, that he thinks they were prematurely post-proletariat. Uh, so they moved beyond the working class, but prematurely. But there's a reason why. There's a sort of like necessity of thinking about what makes up a working person? What kind of subjective conditions would allow someone who works to think about the possibility of socialism that the old left, at least according to Mosh, was not grasping? Um, and so those are really complicated questions. But the issue of how to imagine working people as potentially revolutionary is quite important because I think that around the left today, you know, there's this idea, and, and this is not across the entire left, but some of the left thinks that you have to defend working people and say that they could never hold backward ideas. Um, you know, and, and it's a bit like, well, no, your job as the left is to be able to educate people that might end up being anti-immigrant if they didn't realize that they live under a system in which, you know, un, uh, illegal labor is being used to lower their wages. And that's not natural. That doesn't come from the experience of being a worker in a factory. That's, that's a political perspective that's larger than the working person's experience within a call center, let's say, you know, to be more relative. Yeah. I was going to say, I experienced that a lot with a lot of left groups um, that kind of echo that Maoism, I guess, of discounting uh, American workers uh, as being, like, bought off. There's always... A lot of these groups, they either express this kind of idealized, infantilized view of the working class, which doesn't ever seem to pan out um, sociologically, like it's not people who actually exist. And then there's this corresponding denial of the existence of like actually working class people who, like you say, are like maybe anti-immigrant or just really racist, sexist, like they're... Um, because they don't fit the narrative, the first narrative, they're sort of discounted out of hand. And that seems to be a clear problem of like the misapprehension of the revolutionary subject. Like that's a huge theme here for that reason. Well, I just feel like it's this aspect of relating the general dissatisfaction um, and discontent with the conditions of life that the proletariat would represent that can translate to a the opening of the possibility of general human emancipation, right? That it is that, but right. The issue then is sort of linking that through questions of consciousness, a consciousness that points to towards a necessity of a revolution, the consciousness that points towards a necessity of sort of the big boogeyman, the dictatorship of the proletariat. Um, and, and so 
what then the question sort of missing, I guess, in the interview that it's not an aspect or a strong aspect of the 60s is the party question. Sort of then like what role, right? If if we recognize that both the potential and possibility is there within the proletariat, um, but it's not naturally sort of born, like it doesn't have like revolution in its blood or something, or it's the impulse, there's no unconscious impulse towards revolution, that that has to be think, created, it has to be That's organized. right, and I think that this is where he's definitely part of his generation, the subjective factor, right? So, you know, it, as Marxists, we talk a lot about the objective factors, meaning the material conditions under which people reproduce their lives, uh, as a working class person, I have to take my labor to the market and that's how I can get wages and pay my bills. That's my material conditions. But then there's the subjective dimension, how I experience myself in the world, how I think of my experience in the world. And there are different ways in which that happens. There's a cultural dimension to that, right? Like how I understand myself. If I watch the Roseanne show, like, right, you know, right. do I relate to these people? Like, is that like me? You know, am I seeing myself, my experience? But then there's the political dimension. And like a working class that's revolutionary would have to be constituted politically. And the political dimension is part of the subjective, this larger subjective realm. Exactly. And, you know, and this is, I think, where I, I do want to be able to carefully say that I think here's where Moish leaves things unspecified. Um, but I think he's very much a child of his generation because it's the crisis of, you know, the new left thinks, well, look, maybe the old left imagined that socialism was inevitable, Right that maybe they were down with the popularization thesis that like at one point, like capitalism was gonna become objectively impossible and out of that impossibility, revolution would occur. But what about now that the working class is paid off, right? They have, this, they have this problem. The working class in the first world in the United States is not forming the revolution. The labor so movement itself, idea, the labor right? movement itself has been completely, this, even organized labor, which at least lasted until the 70s or a little bit to the 80s, received its last blows. But right, now that the labor movement is also massively disseminated, because at least that still existed in the 60s, right? There was a complete reorganization, if not 60s, more into the 70s, sort of the turn after 68 labor the strategy for labor, the Andrew Gortz piece as well. But now... Well, so him, Andrew Gortz and Moish are asking similar questions about like, wh what is the experience of labor right. in, in, in the new left? Like, how do working people understand themselves? How is labor organized? Like, what does it mean to talk about the quote-unquote proletarian? And Andrew Gortz, who I think is also important for Moish, and it's sort of part of the similar moment, like raises these questions about, well, labor doesn't look anymore like the factory, the proletariat of the 19th century. Uh, now we have this layer of like the, the technocrats. Like, what, is it, what does it mean that these people, these workers have this knowledge of the production of the whole across an international dimension? And Moish is asking similarly, like, what is the subjective dimension? Like, what is, what is the point of appealing to a working class person and offering them socialism? Uh, it's not just to affirm their existence as a working person per se, right? It's not to like affirm their existence as a sociological subject who takes himself to the call center. It's, it, it's to aspire to something other than that. And so anyway, I, I think that those difficult questions about the subjective dimension, though, like if we were to say that there's one kind of important inheritance of the new left, 
is that right yeah. like what what does it mean to appeal to people uh and what does it mean to constitute a political subject um in 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 a class in this way because it's not given right. to, to constitute a political subject is not given by the material conditions of capitalism exactly right seems like this question loomed large especially in the new left because of like a lot of working class voters during the vietnam war didn't support the kind of social revolution of the 60s. I mean, like my dad, my their were Italian working class, his older brother was in Vietnam. They voted for Nixon. They were like the silent majority. Mm. Um I was asking him about that recently cuz I was just curious. It seems like the revolutionary subject question was sort of um framed differently then. But it seems like there's like this kind of conflation of like political and social revolution at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that that's one of the like looking back now. It's fifty years of nineteen sixty eight, and we've been doing the reading group and left in Berlin. That seems to sort of be definitely a dominant question: the social question, the cultural question. And in the absence of, though, it seems to be, retrospectively at least, very much as a result or a response to the absence of, of, of more explicitly political questions. And so the political question, the question of the political party, kind of gets sidestepped uh, from multiple fronts. And because of multiple reasons, there's a real crisis coming from the Soviet Union, 1956 being kind of like a big Frischer moment. Uh, with regards to the Soviet mm-hmm. invasion of uh, Hungary. And so, yeah, there's a lot of discontent with old communist parties and with us with the idea of politically organizing through parties that is also affecting and saying, okay, so, but then we still, you know, there's there's a lot happening in the air. You know, we know where the, what's the weatherman. You don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind is blowing. Ideas that are like yeah. things were happening everywhere, kind of like things were taking off everywhere. And these things that also get repeated nowadays when activism gets popped up again. But right, that there's kind of this fragmentation of 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 social questions and cultural questions. And there is, yeah, but an absence of, of more explicitly, or it, that we lose than does today, what does it mean to have to raise political change? I think though also there's been, the way that we've inherited the 60s has I now that we're doing the reading group in Berlin on the new left I find that the questions were more sophisticatedly put they were put in a much more sophisticated way actually that we give them credit for and you can sense a kind of general generational kind of helplessness in the new left in trying to make sense of a world that's changing um and you know we we got this in the courts and and we got it in other pieces, but it was this notion that, so the world around them is changing. Capital is reconstituting itself at a mass scale in new forms. And the left is still stuck in this old mode of thinking. And it clearly doesn't have its finger on the pulse. And so culture, like what we mean by culture here is very important because, you know, maybe we've inherited a kind of like hyper reified notion of what we thought the new left thought culture was. Um, but But in Gortz and in other people, like, this subjective factor, right, in a kind of more open way, yeah. if we put it this way. Yeah, yeah. It's like, what do left, how do leftists relate, how do Marxists relate to the subjective dimension, right, of working people, of students, etc.? But how do you mobilize a potentially revolutionary subject without a notion of how you appeal to people's subjectivity? And 
so maybe we've just inherited a very poor way of the ways that people have answered those problems from the new left. And then when we actually read the text of the new left, we're like, these people had real, real problems. You know, they, they wanted to be Marxists and then there were Soviet tanks invading Hungary. And like, how do you make sense of it? Like, what, what does it mean to be against the United States and against what the United uh, the USSR had become? How do you, like, what does it mean to be a Marxist? Like, are you connected to a working class? Not in a meaningful way. What does that mean? And so I think those questions then later, the way that people answered those questions, we've inherited a kind of hardened version of them and a kind of neoliberal edition of the new left. And so it's hard for us to know the difficulty that that generation faced and Anyway, it, it's my most general, generous reading of the new left is that they understood the world was changing, but the political leadership available at the time could not make sense of it. And they understood that much. Exactly. They knew that they lived in the world that was changing, that potentially held opportunities, but that the political leadership available was completely out of step Disoriented. with the potential transformation. Yeah. So I have to ask, what are you really marching for? Because from where I'm standing, it looks like a march to burn the Constitution and rewrite the parts that you all like in crayon. Run them jewels fast, run them, run them jewels fast, run them, run them, run them, run them, run them, fuck the slow mo. No one can point this out better than Killer Mike, who not only knows how guns can solve the problems society faces, he can tell you firsthand what gun ownership means to this nation's safety and its structure. Fashion slave, you protested to get in a fucking lookbook. Everything I scribbled like the anarchist lookbook. Killer Mike was on NRA TV recently and had to issue an apology literally a few hours later. Um. <laughs> I'm sorry that an interview I did about um, a minority, black people in this country, and gun rights was used as a weapon against you guys. March for Our Lives had, I don't know, some, uh, some speculated it was like up to a million people in D.C., but it was like close to a quarter million actually at the march. First-time voters show up 18% of the time in midterm elections. Not anymore. It's a hot topic right now. What are your guys' thoughts? I mean, first of all, I didn't even know that NRA had like a TV channel. <laughs> Me neither, yeah. That's Not true. surprising. And then it was hosted, <laughs> and then, and then this, this particular segment was hosted by a black dude. I was like, whoa, NRA, you're like, yeah. I don't know. Super you're beyond me. I had no idea, yeah. NRA's trying to be woke. Yeah. <laughs> trying to get Killer Mike, you know. Because Killer Mike, you know, what was known, I mean, I didn't know much about Killer Mike. I knew that he was, you know, conscious rap. You not woke. Like yeah. this kind of... Uh, enlightened hip hop kind of stuff. Um, Run the Jewels is like frat bro hip hop, yeah. Yeah. That's his group, uh, yeah. 
so he he's he's part of this like whatever politically active like you know voice of the black community and what i know him from is not really his music but he introduced bernie sanders right so i was like oh okay like there there's this man again and yeah so he was pissed off because people were attacking the second amendment or he felt that like anyone that talks about gun control is essentially trying to undermine the second amendment and he was like look i'm you know, I'm a defender of 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 um, of the Second Amendment. What are you going to do if some if some cop is threatening you and you don't have a way of fighting back? Like, don't you see all all of our people are being killed? And you know, how is it being progressive to take away something that could be used in defense? And that was his argument. And particularly, I would say, things. particularly his argument is the black constituency, the right of black people to bear arms is sort of something that he's also. Um, sort of holding strongly to. Um, I mean, look, I have to say that I understand where he's coming from. Uh, as an American historian, like the idea that people that fought in the Civil War during Reconstruction, black people, like their weapons were taken away. That was a political decision that was made that was in order to suppress the possibility of a rebellion uh, by like black Southerners that clearly expected much more to come out of the Civil War. There's actually a really good part of a book by Richard Wright called Black Boy, um, in which uh, the main character's grandfather sleeps with a rifle by his bed. uh, And the rifle is his union rifle. And it's like, you know, it's proud of place. And, and And it gives you a sense, right, of what maybe some people, at least at one point in time, Black Americans thought that it thought that it meant to to own a weapon. That they thought that it was significant and valuable to demand freedom in this way. And now we've come the other way around. And Killer Mike is now like, you know, the worst like persona non grata. Killer Mike. I is mean, yeah. That's all. That all makes less. Like, first of all, his name's Killer Mike. Like, maybe <laughs> I know. he's what we... maybe he's not nonviolent. Maybe maybe he's not like promoting <laughs> MLK or Gandhi or something level nonviolence. I was just talking about this with you guys before. Like, there was a case in Sacramento very recently, Stefan Clark, who was shot in his, like, grandmother's backyard, and he had a cell phone. And the cops said that they thought he had a gun. So this is used again and again against a lot of inner-city youth. There are people of color, yep. poor people generally, regardless of their color. So it seems like the protest movements, namely, like, BLM, are sort of being absorbed into this. In a confused way. Yes. And I think well, a lot of people are trying to... Yeah, they're trying to process it and make sense of, like, the policy prescription for what is a very valid concern. Obviously, mass school shootings are horrific. So it's like, of course, that's reasonable to want to address this in, in terms of, like, a concrete policy prescription. But the question is, what is that prescription? We should say, we should say the, you know, what these policy prescriptions right. are. So I was going to read that. Yeah. So, right. The, the, just to be clear, the March for Our Lives um, in D.C. was a march that called the members of Congress to pass new gun control laws. The demand measures were things like universal background checks, banning assault rifles. That's a big target, particularly for the Florida students. Um, and uh, also reinforcing, uh, yeah, these better background checks uh, and the assault rifles. I think that these are the kind of like the two big demands. And of course, then that's pushed towards, oh, maybe we should just completely get rid of the Second Amendment. 
Right. John Paul Stevens, um, yeah. <laughs> and the, all the controversial one, right, and repealing the, the Second Amendment not com- it comes with disarmament of whoever already has uh, guns, which is also probably impossible to actually do and might actually produce more violence. <laughs> Meaning, right. hey, like, God knows what that would look like. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, especially on the far left, actually, people are split. Like, there, there's... There's those that are more directly supportive of the Democratic Party who would agree with the Second Amendment, but there's also far-left groups who are completely opposed to it, consider it an anti-working class measure, a racist measure. Uh, so the left itself is sort of in, in massive, deep disagreement over this as well. Well, I mean, uh, anti-fascism was working under the assumption that, you know, Trump is a fascist, he's the head of state, we have to resist a fascist state or government through violence by punching Nazis, etc. Richard Spencer, these people, but clearly, clearly, just a like few in, months later, <laughs> yeah, and just a few months later, it's like, no, we should uh, further consolidate the state's like monopoly on force. But it's like, well, you just said it was a fascist state that you could only resist through like violent means. Yeah, I I was just saying that I heard the New York Daily podcast, The Daily, and they were covering how in the south side of Chicago. There was a student, um, uh, Kishan Newman, whose brother was shot and killed, and he became like a spokesperson that connected with this March for Our Lives movement. And, you know, he was like, look, gun violence is a daily threat for us. We live in the south of Chicago. Like, everybody has guns. Like, there's inner gang violence. Police are shooting. And, like, for him, it was just like, people are dying you know people are dying and people have weapons and this movement is speaking about this and like we're, we're gonna plug in and there was this really heartbreaking moment in the podcast where you hear him talk to his classmates about why why doesn't the violence in the south side of chicago get any airplay why why aren't you know why aren't people in the united states up in arms about what's going on here but then this thing happens in florida and then everybody's talking about gun violence and he's trying to make sense of this he's asking his like fellow classmates he's like well what's different between them and us and they're like well i don't know like you know there are a lot more white students they you know maybe they come from better backgrounds and it's like in that moment, you're you kind of hear the absence of political leadership, and like they're they're like we just want to be heard. We just want someone to know that this is what's happening in the south side of Chicago. That that students are dying constantly, right? And that is a different problem, I think, than school shootings, right? Like by a lone gunman, than the like, inner city violence in the south side of Chicago, and that is itself different from police violence uh, by the state against citizens that are unarmed right and all of these things are being sort of conflated and in that way because it's so confusing it can just mean whatever you want it to mean Mm -hmm. and it's it's very frustrating because obviously this i mean obviously these people of this generation at least the the guy that was speaking in south chicago he feels like like they don't matter to people and he's not wrong that's heartbreaking oh yeah shirak yeah that's yeah yeah no and you know okay so this is sort of Pammy used the term conf- all these different problems come conflated or we see sort of movements being absorbed or co-opted to actually have some within their own ideas are contradictory to these arguments for gun control uh, or don't necessarily the gun co- the main sort of lines and requests of this movement the gun control demands don't necessarily uh 
reflect sort of a response to, for example, yes, the the violence of the, the Chicago inner cities, or just the south side of Chicago, or any other sort of inner city violence. Uh, but then we have like this kind of, I, I, I really want to sort of also begin to understand kind of what's what's new here. I mean, it, it's obviously not the first time that, the, that something the Democratic Party can absorb through a mass activist movement, um, these discontents. And you have the November elections. This is clearly tied to the November election campaigning. It's it's also like all a lot of the Florida kids are, are have been known and become very popular for directly rejecting like Trump's apologies for for what was happening um and or for what happened sorry so the there was a new yorker article that i read and you know it was positively saying these things but i thought that you know bourgeois media there you go um this defined the march for our lives as a massive outcry against extreme violence but that it delivered a mix of pop sentiment corporate cooperation and an awareness of socioeconomic privilege that allows certain voices to be heard louder than others, which I think is sort of referring to the difference between why these kids in Florida are getting heard much louder than the kids in Chicago. Um, but it, it bringing the point home is sort of like the youth protest today does not look like it did 50 years ago. Um, and in fact, many of the students came to Washington D.C. with their parents. Um, that the the students were met by politicians in Capitol Hill. That the Washington Wizard invited them to a basketball practice. Um, and and further and further, sort of things like Shake Shack sponsored the sign making party. And so the and the New Yorker like just says like this is basically the least um, anti-establishment protests in a really long time and it's just being completely integrated with teen vogue time magazine cover like just uh, mass media and corporate uh, uh, relations are just kind of smoothly also getting on on board with this and there yeah, is and, no... and and the capitalist american capitalist walmart the largest retailer in the united states said oh, that God. it would stop selling guns and ammunition to anyone under 21 uh dick sporting goods said that it would stop selling military style semi-automatic rifles and high capacity magazines as well as guns to anyone under 21 and so it, it's it's become like a wave that now american capitalists can ride i mean it, you know it means to be ethically on the right side to appeal you to your consumers in this way i mean i yeah i think bringing both of your points together i mean i think there's a real question of why now why is this movement happening now if uh, as there's like a recent article, I think it was like on NPR, it's like the rate of U.S. gun violence has fallen since 93. A study came out uh, fairly recently that showed that together with the, the very valid objection from people in Chicago who've never not seen gun violence in their lives and seen people they know shot and killed, it's like, why is this happening now? And I think there's there's like a sympathy that's pretty universal with this movement, but there's also this skepticism that comes from like a potential opportunism. That's the, I think the concern is that it might not actually yield some kind of a solution so much as like, you know, bolster the Democratic Party ultimately for November. Um, I don't know if that's too extreme to say something no, like, too skeptical look, I, there was, or cynical. I, there was there was a vice, uh, you know, vice has been covering different aspects of this and the kids in Florida. I saw I can't remember the name of the student, but one of the people that was in Florida that was like speaking and gathering people and organizing the march. Um, he was asked by one of the vice reporters, like, you know, I, I know that 
congressmen, Democratic congressmen have, have spoken to you, they're supporting you, like, do, do you feel like you're, you're kind of a, a pawn? Do you think that you're being played by them? Do you think that you're just advancing their agenda somehow? And the kid was like, no, no, this is, you know, this is about our lives. And, and, and this is just about like our concerns. And we don't care. We're bipartisan. Like whoever listens to us, like will listen to us. But mm-hmm. he doesn't realize that, you know, he's young. And, and yeah. I don't want to say that, oh, he's just naive or something. But I think he doesn't realize that the way that politics works is by tapping into this raw sentiment and then directing it towards specific political actions. And what these kids are end up doing and what these like politicians end up sort of pressuring them to do is, you know, let's rattle the NRA. Like that's really what it's about. Like let's light the fire under them. Let's like hear, you know, they're going to hear us now. And and it that's a political move. That is part of a political agenda. Yeah. There's yeah. no way around it. Yeah, and then sort of also the it means like unequivocal for the most part acceptance, I think, uh, of like gun control being the answer, the right answer, uh, and and sort of where is the proof that gun control will decrease or prevent crime? Any uh, other examples? I'd be sure. Well, if you if you if some fall gun control would go through, who's to say that the other methods sort of you know building. Um, bombs etc wouldn't sort of increase uh meaning this is an argument that um mike mcnair raises in the weekly worker uh so yeah so gun control legislation what will it do it will drastically increase like sentences for people for other crimes as well um yeah it's just like a question of like would not would gun control actually prevent crime well, and what does gun control mean? Because an overwhelming amount of Americans support background checks, including Republicans, including NRA members, you know, trying to enforce existing laws before just jumping the, the gun, bad use of language, and repealing the Second Amendment um, would be more sort of conservative in that sense. And um, I mean, if like yeah. if the vast majority of gun owners in the U.S. are not violent at all and never have been, then just assuming this connection between the existence of guns and gun violence, like it doesn't seem tenable. And it seems like there's a dearth of discussion on this front. I mean, Killer Mike was trying to have it. And to my mind, coming from a very reasonable position that was totally consistent with BLM, right? This idea of self-defense, the right of self-defense, especially for people who've notoriously been targeted by the cops. But why is that discussion being silenced it's it's so confused right it's like what what kind of change we want to bring about in the world which is the thing that like people on the left should have some vision work through like what is the vision for the future that you are rallying people towards Mm -hmm. that's collapsed and so there's this kind of like immediacy of the present everything just gets collapsed into the feeling of the here and now and it then ends up tailing already established political leadership and so uh, these kids and they're kids they're real they're high schoolers they don't they don't have the vocabulary to make sense of how to change the system or what needs mm-hmm. to change and or if so they do and they might the problem is that if they do and they might but it's all still serving the democrats i would say that it's, well that's it's the point all... I, I i think these kids are totally genuine i think everyone's genuine um i think like it's i think that it's uh it's just following the sort of model of protest culture as catharsis yeah the catharsis. Well, I mean, it, it, yeah. right absolutely 
it's a it's a feeling but it's like the questions the questions are so different and you you put it very well earlier like the issue of a policeman shooting a black unarmed person okay that's one issue the second issue is in the south side of chicago there's inner city violence black kids shooting black kids how are they getting these guns why is the south of chicago look like this okay that's the second issue in the school in Florida, a middle class community, there has been a very young person who has had access to an automatic rifle. How does that happen? And the three issues, the only connecting factor is that there was a gun involved at mm-hmm. some level. Someone had a gun. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. but they actually require different solutions. And so the, the reason why they're being kind of mushed together, I think, is right what you're saying. It just provides yeah. this kind of... Uh, this kind of protest that allows people's anger about all of these situations to come out without really following through to a political solution. Because if you were to actually say what, you know, um, who's the judge again? I forget his name. John Paul, John Stevens. Paul Stevens. Yeah. Right. It's John Paul Stevens. You know, he follows it to its logical conclusion. I mean, he, he, he says, like, I understand what the protesters want. They want, like, better background checks. They, they want to take automatic uh, rifles off the market. All of that is so well and good. But really what you should want, if you really take this to its logical conclusion, you want to repeal the Second Amendment and you need to say it. And then that would be a really interesting political discussion. Then we could actually have the kind of political polarization that might turn people away from the Democrats, might take people, like... I don't know, maybe some of them would become socialists, maybe some would maybe some of them would just say like I I don't even think that I want to be political if that's what this if that's what politics is about, you know? I thought it was just about affirming my feelings. And we can't have those political conversations in these protests at all. It's not it's not about it. Right. Yeah. Google Robert F. Williams. He was the person that inspired the Panthers to even become Panthers. He was, he was a black Marxist, he was in the 50s. He was a person that the NRA gave a charter to in North Carolina so that blacks um, could defend themselves. Later those blacks became people like the Deacons of Defense. He also sold them ammunition when they couldn't buy ammunition locally, the NRA did. So the NRA has a value to me. My father's been a member, I am a, I'm a member, I think my father might be lifetime, I'm a member. Um, it has had a value to me my entire life. My entire life my father and uncles have been members of the NRA. I am personally think that one million black men this week should go, go online and just get a year's membership and see how you like it. socially liberal person in general. I mean, I'm still the same. You all move. <laughs> I know so many families, you know, uh, that are divided over the election still, right. and they still like, you know, are fighting and stuff. So we wanted to show that and how our family deals with it. How could you have voted for him, Roseanne? He talked about jobs, Jackie. He said he'd shake things up. 
I mean, this might come as a complete shock to you, but we almost lost our house the way things are going. Have you looked at the news? Because now things are worse. What's up, deplorable? And Jackie thinks every girl should grow up and be president, even if they're a liar, liar, pantsuit on fire. Did you guys see that um, Roseanne interview in Jimmy Kimmel? Yeah, I thought it was. Uh, I thought it was pretty funny. Yeah, it's kind of. It was tense. You think it was tense because I thought I was just. Told, I told Lori that I thought that whoever does her PR, like her PR team, did a good job at figuring out how to not be too offensive because the whole thing ends with her saying, "Well, you know, if you don't like it, this is America. You you vote." You know, you you change the situation, uh, and like no one could say, no one could boo her, right? Because it's like, yes, yeah. that's right, yeah, democracy, yes. She's still saying though, like my guy won, fuck you. Yeah, I guess as an American, like yeah, she also kind of appeared to Americanism, like we should want any president standing right now to succeed, to not fail. Right? She's like, we don't want any president to fail. Like She's trying to be, quote-unquote, bipartisan or something, of being like, don't we want our president to succeed in his work? Um, right? Well, As, yeah, like, this... because she said, do you want Pence? Right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, according to how the government works, how the United States government is structured, if you want that guy out, this is what you're getting. Yeah. Which is true. I mean, there are a lot of people that defended uh, Pence presidency and said that would be preferable to uh, to Trump. Well, that's also yeah. terrifying because he's obviously just way more conservative and everything well, with regards clearly, to women's issues yeah. and it's just going to be much whatever. I'm just saying that that defense, that happened. Like, a lot of Democrats and Republicans said Pence is preferable to Trump last year, which is well, insane. Well, that's indicative of something. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think they're, they're just like, we know what we're going to get with Pence, but we don't know what we're going to get with Trump. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I think you accused her of being a murderer on Twitter, didn't you? I did not! That's about Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> you know I'm going to find that tweet in the next 40 seconds, right? Okay. I really didn't have that part. I really love that part. <laughs> we don't want to see our president fail. Right. Yeah. Right. I know. And yet, don't want pants. and yet we've seen it over again. You want pants? You want pants oh, for the no. freaking president? No, I don't want. Well, then either. zip that. There he is. Yeah, zip. Yeah. Zip that fucking lip. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, funny. she tells Jimmy Kimmel. Yeah. Well, I don't know. So I actually saw the first two episodes of the show, and you know, like. I, I first I was a little disappointed because I felt it was really forced. Like it was very clear what they're doing, and you know it's it's always it's difficult to do like to do a reboot is difficult, right? Because you have to reintroduce the characters, but you don't want to reintroduce them too much because the audience that has been watching the show for many years, like you don't want to bore them. So there's a little bit of like negotiation happening, and you know, but the second one was like. Maybe a little bit better. I mean, I thought that it was funny. I thought that, you know, um, Laurie Metcalf was really good. Like, I think anybody else would have been, like, too trite and too constrained. And it would have just been, like, oh, here's another stereotypical, like, pussy hat, like, you know, woman. Also, it's really interesting, actually, I was thinking about this, is that, you know, Laurie Metcalf in the original series, she was a cop. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. and there's the photo 
They remind yeah. her. She's like, oh. Yeah, there's a photo yeah. of her, you know, as a cop. <laughs> and then she's like, yeah, Hillary. <laughs> so it's kind of like this kind of mixed message, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, or maybe a very direct message uh, yeah. from Roseanne's perspective. Uh, the state is talking. Yeah. But, yeah. I don't know. It was funny. I mean, John Goodman is hilarious. Like, I, yeah. I, I still, it's not the same for me. I really liked the show back in the day. So it's not the same, you know? That's what I was going to say. I didn't really get into the show. My younger brother did, and he, I don't know, he always admired it, because he's gay, and so he always admired it as, like, paving the way for, like, gay characters on TV, which I thought was cool, but, I mean, I feel like it was pretty even-handed, like, the way that they dealt with, like, the gender fluidity thing seemed, like, relatable, I think, for a lot of families, where there's, like, a Phil Donahue-esque treatment of, like, you know, genderqueer kids or something, where it was, like, accepting, but it was, like pragmatic where it's like you're gonna get bullied you know and there's not really you don't hear that these days a lot here's the thing you are weird (laughs) i'm weird this whole family is really weird right (laughs) so you just gotta hang in there until people figure out that weird is cool when is that i don't know but it'll happen and in the meantime you just find the other weird kids and you hide amongst them Even, like, I think John Goodman's role, what's his name as the character? I don't remember. As, like, the dad. Dan. Dan. Yeah, Dan, yeah. You know, but he does have a moment where he's having a fight with his daughter about, like, having given a knife to Marco, the boy. Yeah. Um, uh, And she's like, you just needed to, like, bring up his masculinity. And he's opening the fridge. He's like, since when is masculinity, like, a dirty word? Like... What right. what about that, right? And he's just, like, reacting really naturally. Like, his role in that was felt like one of the more natural sort of, yes. Like, he's also like, what about that aspect of why can't that be nourished too or something? Yeah, and the funny thing is that I think, I think he tells Darlene that, oh, but, like, you didn't have a problem when they gave you a knife. Or something like this. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. true, that's true. Yeah, um... Right, because it's like protecting yourself, never. I mean, I I actually have to say, we'll see how it develops. I thought that, I mean, maybe also like the character, the little boy who dresses as like more feminine. But I, um, I don't know. I think it's all, it's, it seems very forced. And like, but I, I understand what you mean. I mean, I know what they're trying to do is risky, which also means that it's kind of messy. Um, but the audience that they're hoping for, we'll see. Like, I'm skeptical that the audience that they're hoping for will watch the show. I, yeah. I don't know. Um, like, yeah, meaning, like, like well, people might just Michigan it. working person, you know, that used to tune in. I mean, I used to, I mean, I was an immigrant in Michigan and I would tune into the Roseanne show. And actually my mom didn't like it. She liked the Cosby show because it was middle class. <laughs> and, um, like later we had this conversation and now she's come to appreciate Roseanne like much later because I, I would talk to her about it and be like, well, you know, it's like one of the only working class like American shows on TV. And so I watched it with like some degree of curiosity of like, okay, this is what it means to be a worker in America or something. Yeah. Well, it's now it's become specifically about like, the division between, you know, like how political divisions and families like bring people apart. I mean, I don't know, but I'm giving it a shot. I'm watching it, and she's yeah, yeah. There's not a lot of TV uh, right now that kind of has a, a bit of an openness to the political moment that doesn't fall. Yeah. Actually, Pam and I have been talking about the new Queer Eye, 
on this regard. Oh, in, in fact, yeah. I mean, like, it's trash TV. <laughs> like, it's sorry, but it's it, but it's actually very good trash TV on this account. Well, yeah. I, I got like emotional with this show too because it's just kind of like it's really also with regards like what's the difference between gay people and straight people. The show is also trying to like not like necessarily just stick to like oh a hetero person is being like changed, but also the kind of people they're going to the south. It's like there are these states that are sort of Trump land. Yeah. Uh, there's a cop. Well, in, they're they're in Georgia. They're in Georgia. They're in Georgia. Yeah, yeah, but they go it, the very specific people that are Trump supporters. Like, there's one guy that literally has a "Make America Great Again" hat in his closet, <sighs> and he's a cop, and okay. he gets a makeover by the queer eyes. Oh, guys. nice. Yeah. And the first guy was also like he was very much like of that type, although his. His political views are not, like, shared with the people in the show, but he's, like, you know, it's, like, old white guy, like, big dude, burly, and he's just, like, I don't really care about fancy things, you know, I just do my job, and then I come back to work, and uh, I make myself, what does he call it, like, white trash margaritas or something like that, it's like Mountain Dew and tequila, and they're, like, oh, honey, like, (laughs) we're gonna need to show you some things, but, okay, so there is some mood in the air, there's some kind of, like, you know, there's some kind of cultural expression here that's trying to transgress these, like, supposedly demarcated lines of whatever, like, politics as culture or something. They're yeah. like, well, well, maybe it's not that simple. I mean, I think the discourse is so degraded. And, there, I mean, there's so many pieces about uh, the extent to which social media, particularly Facebook, has contributed to that. Um, and, you know, I took off a couple months uh, from Facebook last year, you know, after the election, and when I got back on, I just remember feeling like kind of overwhelmed by just how catty and infantile the tone was like of everything on Facebook. My newsfeed was just all just sounded like really hysterical, angry people on any side of the spectrum. Like it just the tone was very noticeable. It stood out from regular daily life. So I think there's I think there's a desire for reconciliation that's out there right now. And so that's any right. kind of form of media that can tap into that, even if it feels forced because it's such a delicate tightrope walk, I guess, you know, it's yeah. in this era where it's never good enough, it's never woke enough, there's, everything's problematic. I mean, it, it's, how yeah. can we, ma- ah. how can we make sense of these social changes in like an honest way that registers like real discontent without constantly just devolving into like finger wagging and hot takes? Mm-hmm. The three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri film. That's um, the other one. That's the other yeah, one. Yeah, from you know from last year was really good. Um, it 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 was good in a different way. It didn't even talk about Trump, Democratic Party. None of that stuff like came up. It wasn't about like these people dealing with politics explicitly, but it was about the sort of complicated ideas of justice and like, violence and, and violence. Yeah, and and cops, and, you know, there's, like, this complicated relationship to the supposed hero of the story who, you know, maybe is more vengeful than seeking out, really, justice. I mean, it gets very messy, highly recommended, but the mother in the character, the mother of the cop, who's, like, one of the main guys, is just, like, straight out of Trump country kind of person, like, definitely made in that mold, and... You know, the things that come out of her mouth are pretty crazy. One of the things that the cop says, one of the cops says is like, um, he's talking about how, um, oh, they don't have enough black cops 
or something. They don't have enough black cops. And, like, if you if you get, like, more black cops, then, like, people are going to start complaining about not having enough gay cops. And, like, I don't know. It, it was, like, it was like <laughs> the, the difficulty of being in a small town and being told, like, there's not enough, like black cops in, in this in this area. No, the line like the line says it's like if I get rid of all the racist cops, then I'm gonna be just left over with the homophobic cops. He's like, That's So right. what am I so what am I gonna do? Right? That's right. That's right. And, That's how it goes. Yeah. 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 And it's kinda I mean, like this funny we, funny and weird like reality check moment in the film. Yeah. It's like uh, this is where people are at. Yeah. Like like that's that's what it looks like today. Yeah. Uh, so there was an honesty about it that I thought was good. I talked to somebody else; they didn't like it at all. They were like, "There were so many stereotypes." So yeah, Roseanne emphasized um, something that I also experienced personally with my own family, which is like people in the armed forces and how there's a growing divide between families that have young people serving in the armed forces and people who don't. Um, people who've sacrificed a lot, even if not necessarily their lives, but who've sacrificed, you know essentially their lives in various ways um, through their service. Like That's more of a predictive factor for looking at the outcome of the 2016 election in a lot of ways. So mm. any way that Trump supporters or the election can be painted in a more accurate light, I think is good because the point is not just this ideological support for Trump or something, but it's like how to properly oppose Trump. Which is yeah. like, take his supporters at face value. Like if they're actually anti-war, why aren't we hearing more about that? Or why aren't we viewing it in those in that light? Yeah, I also that's right. Agreed. No, I, I agree with that. I mean, the, there's a bit at the beginning where they're uh, talking about how much medicine they're capable of getting, and there's a reality check with like material conditions. It's like, well, our insurance like doesn't cover, you know, enough. So now we've got half the meds, but twice the price, and so like that's just how it is. And yeah, and it's interesting that the show does that, right? It's not trying to like tell you that now we're living in like a different America. Prosperity. And, these working class people are getting what they deserve or something and yet yeah. they're still compelled by their ideas and yeah i thought the sun being like a syrian war um yeah uh, army deployed syria. was really interesting yeah that was interesting and the syria the specifically and the way that that landed was like syria was also sort of kind of like shook me because mm. like yeah. i because i've been out of the u.s for long enough to not hear about sort of the anti-syria Syrian war protests or anti-Syrian war sort of um, veterans that become anti-war as a result. I'm used to Iraq and Afghanistan. I haven't quite experienced with Syria. For it. So it was a bit of a shock to be like, oh, that's right, of course, um, that that was also happening. Yeah. What happened to the rest of our candy? <laughs> Funny story, our insurance don't cover what it used to, so I got half the drugs for twice the price. What are we supposed to do? Well, tradesies. I'll trade you five of my statins for five of your anti-inflammatories, and I'll sweeten the pot by throwing in a couple of blood pressures. Did you get the pain pills for my bad knees? Wouldn't be the candy man without the sunshine, babe. <laughs> Just chill, you know? Try to think positive for, like, why people wanted a change. Mm -hmm. And it's up to the people. Here's my two cents, damn it. Okay. It's up to us to make this government work, no matter who's president. It's up to us to do our jobs as citizens 
And if we don't like something, you know, let them know you don't like it. And then you got another election in two years. Get out there and vote.